0: lovely thank you very much Archie thank you for having me here this morning it's really nice to (laughs) yeah Alan It's really nice to be <laughs> that's it. It's great to be here um, this morning. So I just wanted to start um, by asking you, I wonder if anyone like me has these kind of silly family arguments. You know, the kind of arguments that you would never have uh, with anyone else, that you wouldn't have it with your friends. Um, they're just silly arguments that don't really mean anything. And uh, for example, in our family, we have this ongoing argument about who's the best driver in the family. So I don't know if anyone else has these kind of conversations. So, um, you know, we've all kind of grown up and left home but when we get back together when we're all travelling in the car this conversation inevitably comes up and this argument about who's the best driver in the family. So it probably started with my dad so he's got a licence to drive buses and lorries and he's kind of a self-proclaimed professional driver as he would say so he thinks that he is the best driver in the family. Uh, But in the last year or so he lost his title after reversing into a parking space where he managed, there was another van coming into the parking space at the same time and they managed to crash into each other so me and my brother decided that that meant that he actually lost the title of best driver in the family so my brother being um, my brother he decided that he was now the best driver in the family and so he would continue to remind us of this all the time until he managed to get a speeding ticket and then he got points on his license now I don't have any points on my license so I think that entitles me to now be the best driver in the family However, I'm not going to mention to the rest of my family the parking bollard that I reversed into um, a few months ago because the parking bollard was inside the parking space. Like, who does that? I I don't know why. (laughs) So anyway, we have these silly arguments, okay? Um, You know, it's just a silly example. But what is it about us within our family that we have this desire to want to prove ourselves to be the best, you know, prove ourselves to be the greatest? And that is a silly example, But the truth is that we do live in a competitive world, a world that's often at times looking to put each other down in order to make ourselves feel like we're the best or the most successful. And what for? Is is it for recognition? Is it for pride? Is it for power, respect? Today we're continuing in our series through the book of Mark, and we come to this passage um, in chapter 9 where the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. So, we're going to turn there now in our Bibles. If you have a Bible or if you'd like a Bible, I don't know if somebody would like to volunteer to just pass some Bibles out. If you need a Bible, just put your hand in the air um, and thank you very much. (laughs) Um, Although it will also come up on the screen behind me. So, anyone need a Bible? Anyone want a Bible? Okay, so we're going to read together. So, um from the book of Mark 9, we're starting in verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, "The son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after 3 days he will rise." But they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum. When he was at the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever, whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. I'm just gonna pop that there. Okay. So, we see in this passage that Jesus and the disciples are continuing on their journey. And this seems to be a constant theme all the way throughout the book of Mark, this theme of journeying. So, firstly, you've got the journey of Jesus and his ministry as he travels throughout Israel, preaching the gospel, welcoming the kingdom of God, uh, praying for healing, seeing deliverance. Um, So, we've got the journey of Jesus traveling around Israel, welcoming the kingdom of God. But then there's also this theme of the journey of the disciples. The journey of the disciples called to be with Jesus, the journey of the disciples as they watch him, as they kind of move into a deeper revelation of who Jesus is and a deeper revelation of the kingdom of God. You know, the journeys of the disciples as they are given power and authority, as they too start to go out into Israel and do the same things that Jesus has been doing. You know, they're on a journey of learning and of revelation and I feel like this is a passage that's, in a way, it's kind of focusing in. It's kind of zeroing in specifically on the journey of the disciples. And this theme of journeying is actually like an introduction to this passage. So we see that they're on the move again. They're passing through, through Galilee. And we also see how Jesus values this time of learning, this time of teaching with his disciples. You know, He carves out this special time um, to be alone with his disciples, to continue to teach them and to continue to prepare them for what is to come. And so it's not the first time that Jesus has began to speak about what's going to happen to him. It's not the first time that he spoke plainly about the fact that he is going to be killed and to rise again. But the, the disciples still don't understand. And this time they're afraid to ask. And it's really not surprising if we remember back to the last time when Jesus spoke about his death. And when Peter challenged him, the response that he got from Jesus was, Get behind me, Satan. You know, so I think we can kind of understand why the disciples were scared to ask Jesus. And the disciples were also used to Jesus' teaching methods, which were about parables and using symbolism. And at the time, they don't know what's going to happen. You know, it's easy for us with the full picture. But for them, maybe the disciples were looking for some kind of hidden meaning in what Jesus was teaching them. You see, they had a different understanding of what the Messiah was. You know, they were expecting the Messiah to be someone who was going to come and release them from Roman oppression, who was going to come and overturn the kind of Roman rule and establish his kingdom. You know, they had this image and this idea of a victorious Messiah. So Jesus talking about his death didn't fit in with the disciples' idea of who the Messiah was. But Jesus is happy to, you know, they're on the road and it's like he's planting seeds as he walks along with them. He's hap- he, he knows they don't understand, but he leaves it there. I think knowing that at some point it's all going to click into place. And then we come to this really interesting section that as they move from Galilee to Capernaum, the disciples began arguing about something, arguing about who was the greatest. And and as I looked at this, I find this a really fascinating argument when we look at the overall journey of the disciples, when we look at where they started from, when we look at the fact that these were ordinary men, that these were fishermen, that, that, you know, Levi, the tax collector, you know, these were ordinary guys. You know, the tax collector, probably no one would have liked him, he would have been hated. You know, fishermen were ordinary men. And suddenly we come to this part of the story where they're arguing about who is the greatest. And I just find myself asking the question, what has happened on this journey to move them from the everyday ordinary to being men who are arguing about their greatness? You know, what is it that's happened to them? And the truth is, as we look at the story, they've encountered Jesus. You know, they've been with Jesus. They've been empowered by Jesus. You know, that is the difference in their lives. And you're like, well, wait a minute, but isn't Jesus about to correct them? Well, yeah, Jesus is about to correct that wrong attitude that is about us thinking that we're greater than someone else. But I also think there's something about being around Jesus that makes us feel great. And I actually think that there's something that, that where God is actually calling us to be great. And I think that that is what this passage almost wants to zero in at, zero in on, is how do we become great in the kingdom of God? So that's why the name of my talk today is this journey to greatness and I believe this passage has some important things to teach us about how we achieve greatness in the kingdom of God. And so the first point I want to make, the first point I think we see in this passage is that it begins with being teachable. So we've already spoken about the fact that Jesus has Um, carved out the special time to to be with his disciples and to teach them. You know, teaching time is of highest priority with Jesus. And when I turned 17, I was absolutely desperate to drive, another driving um, story, but I really was. And I lived in this little town called Octorarder, and as a 17-year-old, there really wasn't very much to do in the town, and I was absolutely desperate to pass my driving test so that I could go to the the bigger towns where there was more exciting things to do. So at 6 o'clock on the morning of my 17th birthday, I woke my dad up and got him to take me out for a driving lesson before I went to school. You know, that's how desperate I was um, to learn to drive. And then as I began to start my official driving lessons, pretty much by the second driving lesson, I turned up and told my instructor that I had booked my driving test. (laughs) So my driving instructor hadn't told me I was ready to sit my test, um, but I had decided that I wanted to kind of skip the process of learning to drive. I felt I was ready. I felt that with my dad and some extra practice, I would be absolutely fine and I'd be ready to pass my test. So reluctantly, my instructor agreed to let me sit it, but of course... I failed. <laughs> I failed my test. You see, the problem was I wasn't ready. The problem was I hadn't had enough time to practice. You know, I hadn't listened to the advice of my teacher. I had my own ideas about what I wanted to do and how quickly I wanted to do it, and I wasn't teachable. And it actually wasn't until I submitted myself to the process of learning and put in the necessary hours of practice that I was finally able to sit and pass my test. You know, we often want to fast track to the good and the exciting stuff. But actually, to be a disciple of Jesus means to learn, is to give time to learn. You know, the actual word disciple is from the Greek word mathetes, which literally means to learn. You know, that's what we're called to as we, as we are also included in, in being disciples of Jesus. And we need to give ourselves to the process of learning and growing and studying his word and hearing his voice. And it takes time. It takes time to feed ourselves um, with, with those, those things. You know, the disciples had been on the journey, probably at this point with Jesus, for nearly three years. And they're still learning. You know, they still have their own ideas about things. But the difference with the disciples is that they were hungry and they were up for learning. You know, God wants us to be teachable and not to rush the process. And sometimes when there's old ways of thinking that are so ingrained into us, it takes time to go over them again and again and again. And we see that with the disciples. Sometimes they receive the same lesson again and again and again because it takes time for that knowledge to go from our heads to our heart and actually transform into a lifestyle that that affects the way we act rather than just being a theology. And you know That's what God wants for us as we study his word, as we study his kingdom, that it would become more than head knowledge, but actually it would become the way that we live our lives. But that takes time and it takes putting ourselves in that place of being teachable and open to learn and feeding ourselves um, with the, the word of God and um, coming into the presence of God and inviting the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and to change us. So we already touched on the first lesson uh, where Jesus spoke about the fact that he was going to die, that he was going to be delivered into the hands of men, that they would kill him, and after three days he will rise. And we spoke about the fact that the disciples don't get this, and and I think that is because it doesn't fit in with their belief system. So the disciples are on a journey, so they don't get what he's talking about, but they know that they will get there in the end. They continue to be teachable. You know, they don't get offended by what Jesus has said. They don't get upset by what he said because it doesn't fit in line with their understanding. Instead, they continue to be in his presence. They continue to be around him. They continue to listen to his teaching. You know, I often wonder why did Jesus not choose the Jewish scholars, um, you know, to be his disciples? You know, these were people that were well versed in scripture. You know, surely just a little bit of correction would, would have meant that they would have got this faster than the disciples. W- than the disciples disciples did. But the truth was that the Jewish leaders of the day weren't teachable. They themselves had their own ideas about who the Messiah was. And they were offended by Jesus. When we look at the story, as they've come into contact with Jesus, as they heard his teaching, they got offended by his teaching. And I just felt so challenged by that. I just want to keep my heart teachable before the lord i don't want to come with my ideas and opinions already formed but i want to come into the presence of god and say lord shape me teach me show me how to live my life bill johnson says that god will never contradict his word but he may contradict your understanding of his word i thought that was a really good point god will never contradict his word but he may contradict your understanding of his word You know, for for what Jesus was teaching the disciples seemed to contradict their understanding of who they thought the Messiah was. But actually, what Jesus was talking about was the fulfillment of Scripture, but they just didn't see the big picture. But the disciples continued to stay around and to learn and to grow and to look for deeper revelation. But Jesus also at times brought correction to the disciples. You know, that's part of what this passage is about. And the disciples are teachable in receiving that correction. But often for us, that's the part we don't like, being corrected, especially when God uses other people to do it. That's one of the hardest parts about being teachable but God needs us to be open to his correction, to his leading, to his guiding, especially where there's areas of our lives where there's misunderstanding or even sin. So I believe that this is a key on the journey to greatness, that we need to remain teachable, that we need to embrace the learning process, and that we also need to be open to correction. And I think that this is true for all of us, whatever stage we're at in our discipleship walk, because there's always more to learn in God. There's always more that he wants to show us. He wants to take us into a deeper revelation of who he is, a deeper revelation about the kingdom of God. So the second lesson in this passage on the journey of greatness is about servanthood. So we see that the disciples and Jesus, they're walking and talking together. But we also have this contrast where Jesus is sharing the fact that he is going to the cross. He is basically sharing that he is going to give his life to die um, for the sake of the world. And then we have this contrast with, meanwhile, the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. And I wonder what Jesus thought as he was carrying this burden of knowing that he was heading to the cross. And meanwhile, he's listening to the disciples having this argument. So as they arrive at their destination, Jesus asks the disciples this question. What were you arguing about on the road? Now, I think it's clear that Jesus knew exactly what the disciples were arguing about on the road. I'm sure we've all had a question like this. It's the kind of question that means busted. You're so busted. Because actually, the person asking the question already knows the answer to the question. And you know that they know the answer to the question. And actually, they're just asking you to draw your attention to the thing that you were talking about in order to get you in trouble. (laughs) And then it says that the disciples kept quiet. You know, why did they keep quiet? They had obviously been convicted about the fact that what they were arguing about wasn't going to be affirmed by Jesus. You know, they knew that this wasn't um, part of Jesus' value system, arguing about who is going to be the greatest. And then we come to this incredibly powerful teaching moment. In verse 35, it says, Sitting down, Jesus calls the twelve. So up until this point, we've been on the journey with Jesus. The disciples and Jesus, they've been walking along the road. They've been talking together. Jesus has been teaching. He's almost been like dropping in seeds about what's going to happen, preparing the disciples as part of the journey. And then we come to this moment when we're in the house. We come to this sit down moment where Jesus sits down and calls the 12 to himself. You know, Jesus taught like a rabbi, you know, and that was how rabbis taught. They sat, and the posture of learning for the disciples was that they came and they gathered and they sat at the feet of the teacher. That was the way in in the culture of the day that people learned. So, in this moment, the disciples would have recognized this as a teaching moment. That this was an important moment. This was time to listen up and pay attention to what Jesus was about to say. So, he sits down and he calls the twelve to him and he begins to teach. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And actually, out of this whole passage, this is the key verse. This is the key phrase. So if you have a highlighter or a pen, this is the verse, I think, to to highlight, to underscore, to mark in some way. Jesus teaches us anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. You know, this teaching is absolutely foundational to the culture of the kingdom. And Jesus wants his disciples to get it because, in effect, what we have in this passage is like a clash of two kingdoms. On one hand, you have the disciples arguing about who is the greatest. And, you know, that is a worldly point of view, that the idea that greatness is about being greater than somebody else, that being great is about putting someone else down in order to make yourself feel great. You know, that's a worldly way of thinking. But what Jesus said is the complete opposite, that actually if you want to be first, you have to be last for the disciples at this point they are moving with power and authority so back in mark chapter 6 jesus had given them authority um, over evil spirits and he sends them out and they're driving out demons and anointing the sick and seeing people be healed you know, they've been on this incredible journey. You know, they're probably starting to be quite well-respected by the Jews, um, the Jews that came into contact with them. You know, they had this label of being disciples of Jesus. You know, that was part of their new identity, and they, had ex- they were experiencing what it was like to have power and authority. But actually, the root of this argument, I think, lies in the disciples' ongoing misbelief um, that Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman rule and establish the kingdom of heaven. Because the disciples understood that whoever was the greatest among them would get the highest positions of power and authority in the new kingdom. And that's what they're arguing about. They want these positions of power and authority and what they believe is Jesus' soon-to-be-established kingdom. You know, they've been under Roman oppression. They're very used to the kind of symbolism um, or authority of the Romans uh, with kind of Caesar and, uh, as uh, you know, all the uh, whoever's greatest all the different leaders and how they have power and authority but they seem to forget momentarily that all the power and authority they have been given has actually come from Jesus. The world teaches us that it's about position and status and that that's important. Who has the most power? Who has the most authority? And the disciples want to make it to be the ultimate most successful <laughs> disciple. that that actually success is about being better than the rest. I wonder how many of us um, understand that as a worldly concept. You know, I used to really enjoy sports day at school. at school, I um, yeah I actually won junior, intermediate, and senior sports champion uh, when I was at school, which sounds really impressive until you ask me how many people were <laughs> taking part um, in our sports day. So we were quite a small school, and to be honest, the other girls in the year weren't really that interested in sports, so it wasn't really difficult for me um, to win these events on sports day. But you know, those achievements began to make me feel really good about myself, and you know, I tell people I'm junior, intermediate, and senior sport, and it sounds good until one day I got invited to go to the county sports and when I arrived there the field was a lot bigger there were so many more people and it hadn't occurred to me that maybe I should actually put in a bit of effort and train and get ready and I was absolutely devastated when it came to my favorite event which was the 800 meters and I came second last out of the whole competition So, you know, my view of myself in that moment was shaken. No longer did I think that I was this amazing, sporting, successful, you know, kind of person. But the problem is, with the worldly value system that is based on um, that success is about being better than the rest, is that there will always be someone (laughs) who's better. And we're always left living in this constant state of trying to strive and being dissatisfied and and competing against other people. And it's exhausting. But Jesus brings a direct and strong challenge to this worldly attitude. And in effect, he's saying in the kingdom of heaven, the culture of heaven is that anyone who wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all that position is not about being the best, it's not about having the most authority, but rather it's about serving. Pastor Rick Warren, he says, Jesus measures greatness by service, not status. God determines your greatness by how many people you serve rather than by how many people serve you. So that was Rick Warren. So the kingdom of God is it's so countercultural. It's like this upside down kingdom. You know, take the world the way the world does it, take the things the world values and then turn them upside down, and that is the culture of the kingdom of God. So the disciples measured greatness by position, power, and authority. And today, all those things still apply. But now we also have all these other apparent markers of success and, and greatness. You know, things like, how attractive are you? Or how many followers do you have? Or, or how many likes do you get? Or, or how much money do you have in the bank? You know, there are so many ways that the world looks to teach us to be dissatisfied. Or the world looks to teach us to continue to strive um, to, for, for, for greatness, these false goals, but God says greatness is in how we serve one another, it's how we love one another, it's how we honor people. That instead of tearing a person down to feel better about ourselves, that in the kingdom of God, it's actually about raising people up. You know, that's greatness. And it takes time for us to change our mindset. You know, for me, I've read this, I've studied this, but it's still a challenge to make this part of the value system that I live my life from. You know, it takes time to change that mindset. And for the disciples themselves, this wasn't a lesson that they heard once and got. You know, we'll see later on in the book of Mark in chapter 10, uh, when the disciples come, when James and John come, and they ask Jesus if they can sit at the right and left of him. and, And they just still haven't got it. They haven't got that greatness in the kingdom is about serving. They're still looking for these positions of power and authority. So we need to continue to feed our mind uh, with the culture of the kingdom through repetition, through meditation, through studying God's word, through continuing to pray, through recognizing those attitudes in our hearts that need to change and permissioning God to come and move and to come and work in us because we are all on a journey to being transformed in the likeness of Christ, step by step. You know, we don't suddenly become perfect, but we are continuing on that journey, permissioning God, being teachable, inviting him to come. Jesus models servanthood the best. You know, he is the Son of God. And he came to earth in Mark ten forty five it says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we follow his example. We follow Jesus. You know, following Jesus is not the same as following someone on Instagram. You know, we're not just a spectator to the life of Jesus. We're actually doers of what he tells us to do, learner doers, learner doers. And that kind of brings me to my next point, is that on this journey to greatness, we need to actively pursue greatness. So as we move into a new understanding of what true kingdom greatness is, that we actually need to be active in our pursuit of that. Jesus instructs us to be servants of all, and he uses this example of a child to illustrate what he means. That we're not just to serve people that, feel, that appear as if they're worthy. In verse 36, it says, He took a little child who he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these ch- little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. So we understand that a child in this culture had no status, had no respect, but Jesus is teaching them to serve and to welcome everyone, even those with no apparent worldly value, because in the kingdom of God, all are of significance and all are of importance. This is the path to kingdom greatness. If we were to look at the account of the same story in in, in the book of Matthew, it kind of expands on it a bit. And it says, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So Jesus is using this illustration of a child. You know, whoever humbles himself like a child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, humility is such a powerful thing. You know, Jesus demonstrates humility coming as the son of God in his glory and splendor, but choosing to serve, choosing to die for us. You know, true humility is not actually about thinking less of ourselves but true humility is actually a just thinking about yourself less. So true humility is not about thinking less of yourself, but actually it's just about thinking less of yourself. Less. I <laughs> mucked that up. But it's about knowing who you are. It's about being secure in your identity, but yet choosing to serve anyway. You know, that's what Jesus demonstrates. He knows who he is. He knows he's the son of God, but he has no problem washing the disciples' feet. You know, he demonstrates again and again this attitude of service, of serving people. And he's active in pursuing opportunities to lead people into an encounter with the kingdom of God. You know, he's active in moving around and looking to bring freedom and deliverance and healing because he knows who he is and he knows um, the heart of his father. And I believe that God wants us as a church to begin to move more with power and authority in order to serve the world around us, in order to be able to demonstrate the powerful love of God that is present to heal and to set free and to deliver, to bring salvation and redemption. And so we need to pursue those things. We need to be active in the pursuit of these things. And it's not because it's about our greatness, but it's because it's about his. So we need to pursue opportunities to serve serve wherever we're at you know serve in our workplaces serve in our work colleagues serve, serve in our family serving in our church you know serving our neighbors serving in communities you know many times opportunity for greatness comes in the most small and unexpected moments you know ill-timed interruptions and and maybe just in simple repetitive acts of kindness you know these are ways of demonstrating the love of God these are ways of growing in greatness in the kingdom of God You know, in the Bible, uh, David served his father by looking after the sheep. He was faithful with what he had been entrusted, and he learned a lot in the process. And, you know, it was actually as he delivered sandwiches to the battle, to his brothers in the battle, that he encountered Goliath. You know, there was something about his acts of service that actually released him into his destiny. And I just think for us, you know, we know that God is calling us to things in our lives. And maybe some of us are wondering, you know, how do we start to walk out the calling of God on our lives? Or how do we go deeper in walking out the call of God in our lives? And I want to suggest to us that it begins with serving. You know, so if we want to be first, we need to be the first ones to turn up on a Sunday and put out the chairs. You know, if we want to be first, we need to be the first to put our hands up and volunteer for the Madrota when they're short of people. You know, the first to show kindness to that colleague that's maybe been bullied at work. Or the first to to help that friend that's struggling with depression. You know, if we want to be first in the kingdom, we need to be looking for ways that we can serve. You know, I think that God has actually put a desire for greatness within us and that if we build on the foundation of Jesus' teaching and understand that this greatness comes through serving, then we are free to pursue it. We're free to be active in looking for opportunities to serve and to bless and to grow in the supernatural. That we would be motivated by compassion just as Jesus was, compassion for broken people who need Jesus, who need to know the power of God in their lives. So let's be active in the pursuit of greatness, however countercultural it may seem. I just want to finish by reading this quote by a lady called Marianne Williamson. Maybe some of you have heard this before, but it says, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are more powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous, Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God, and your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are meant to shine, as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. I love that quote. So let's use our greatness to serve a broken world. That as we step into freedom and fullness and into the purposes of God, that we might just ask and invite others to do the same. Why don't we stand together?